Hi there, and welcome to Emmanuel. This is our weekly teaching podcast. We hope that it encourages you to live a little bit more every day like Jesus taught us to. God bless you. The first four verses that we're looking at this morning, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, I've had it, I've sat under entire sermon series just on those four verses. Uh, in seminary, we spent weeks unpacking the depth of those four verses. Uh, there is no way we're going to do that this morning. And so I charge you to this week, uh, study this passage a little bit, because there is no way that I can unpack everything that God's shared with us in here today. So with that being said, my plan is to kind of read a section, talk about it for a few seconds, read another section, and assuming we don't run out of time, give some application at the end. Does that seem reasonable to everyone? Good. The rest of you are asleep. Why don't we pray? Now, the very last thing I want to do this morning is steer us in the wrong direction. We desperately want to be closer to your heart for us, closer to your plan for us. And so, God, this morning, would you please speak to all of us? Would you speak to our souls? Uh, Where the human mouth gets in the way, Lord, would your spirit infuse our minds and our bodies and our uh, souls and renovate us, change us to look a little bit more like your son? We ask this in your name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now last week I spent a bunt of time, a bunt? Bit? Bunch? Of time talking about this notion of the promise made to Abraham. And I'm not going to repeat that because I think, frankly, that's where some people said, I don't think you knew what you're talking about. But this promise that Paul is alluding to is this notion that that God desires, has always desired to be in relationship with humanity. And that those of us who through faith trust Christ are brought into that family of God. God brings us in and has always intended to bring you into his family. Now one thing I'll just mentioned briefly, and it happens in the first couple of verses. I I want you to see the word baptized there in verse uh, 27. And the reason I want you to see it is, I want you to understand how commonplace it was. In our day and age, we don't really hold much truck with ritual, especially empty ritual. We've seen people do all kinds of things and make all kinds of promises and all kinds of ceremonies with the very best of intention and then walk away from them almost immediately. I remember performing a wedding for someone and witnessing and signing off on the vows for the bride and groom only to find out that the groom was literally having an affair that day. We've all been part of ceremonies that clearly meant nothing to somebody. But what you need to understand is that in the early church, 
Verse 27, if you don't mind. In the early church, the notion of baptism was just normative. Now, in our fellowship, for those of you who are visiting, this is a little bit of inside baseball conversation. In our fellowship, we've made a big deal about the form of baptism. It's got to look this way. And I'm not sure that we've always been right on that. There, there is certainly a default in Scripture about what baptism looks like, but there's not a mandate that it only looks like this. But what is clear is that baptism is a normative part of a Christian experience. There is no such thing in early Scripture as an unbaptized believer. It's a normal part of a Christian growth curve. Now, that doesn't mean that baptism is necessary for salvation or necessary to walk alongside God. But it does reflect a heart condition that is willing to obey God. So I just want you to see just briefly, look, Paul talks about it as if it's just perfectly normal. And in our day and age where ceremony doesn't really mean as much, please don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But what I really want you to see is in verse 28. In verse 28, Paul begins tearing down some walls. He runs through just about every dividing line that existed in his day and age. Uh, when he says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, that's kind of a colloquial way, that's kind of a slang way of saying there's, there's, it's not like there's Jew and everybody else. Right? It's not like there's Jew and Greek. It's not like there's Jew and anyone else. There is no racial difference in the family of God. When he says there's neither slave nor free, he's pointing out that there is no economic standing in God's eyes. If you're wealthy in this world, it doesn't mean that God loves you more. If you are poor in this world, it doesn't mean that God hates you. It's not like God looks at you and says, Ah, you are more spiritual. Please take more money. In a, in a day and age where money me, meant a lot, almost like our society now, it's not like Paul was saying, or it's not like God was saying, look, if you are a free, high-class Roman citizen, God clearly likes you more. In fact, one of the problems that emerged in the early church is that master and slave would both come to Christ, and within the church, often the slave would be put in a position of leadership. And so during the day, the master would tell the slave what to do, and then at night, the slave would be the leader of the master, and it was turning society on its ear. It's not like God likes you if your bank balance is positive, or doesn't like you if you're economically stressed. The love of God knows no racial boundaries, it knows no economic boundaries, and it knows no gender boundaries, which frankly was radical for Paul to say. In Christ, there is neither male nor female. was radical for God to say. And in our day and age, and if you've grown up in the church, this is, I, I, I hate doing inside baseball stuff, but I need to highlight this. There's a, a movement emerging within like Christian subculture that's like, no, no, God has clearly equipped men and women to do different things. But there are some things that gals can do that guys can't. But spiritually, there is no difference. Men and women are equal in the eyes of God. 
And if you bump into some guy that's claiming, no, no, men are superior in the church, please kick them rather hard in the shins for me. Because in God's eyes, we are all equal. I love how Pastor Kai said it years ago, and I asked him, and he stole it from somebody else, so I can steal it from him. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Just because I'm part of a family that's been following Jesus for seven generations doesn't mean that I stand one hair's width higher than anyone else at the foot of the cross. Just because you are a brand new convert to Christ doesn't mean that you are more superior or less superior. The ground is equal at the foot of the cross. And of course, if you are diligently taking care of your relationship with God, you will grow in your relationship with him. And if you're not, you will stagnate. But there's no division based on any human boundaries. It's like this. If a, if a, a father has two kids and one moves to another continent and calls once a quarter to say hello, and the other moves to the house lot right across the road and calls a couple of times a day and stops over for a meal several times a week, which one is going to have the tighter relationship with the father? But does that mean that the father rejects the other? Of course not. We are all equal in God's eyes. And he continues on with that. And why am I making such a big deal of it? Because in the next few verses, it can sound like Paul is being gender specific. And if you catch that, you're actually going to miss a beautiful teaching that Paul, or if, if you get hung up on that, I should say, you're going to miss a beautiful teaching that Paul is trying to get to. So in the next few verses, when he's teaching about sonship, don't hear that as like some kind of gender thing. I remember being part of a class where, the, no, no, I'm just not ever going to teach on this passage because I don't like, I, I'm a gal and I don't want to. It's like, no, 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 you're, you don't miss this. Chapter 4, verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. In the Roman society to which Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, and if you missed the last couple of weeks, what's going on is that the gospel was declared in the region of Galatia, and people came to it, and they embraced the freedom of Christ, the freedom from rules and rituals and regulations, and freedom into relationship that the gospel represents. And then in the wake of Paul arrived some people steeped in the old way of doing things, the legalizers. And so Paul is writing a letter to Roman culture that first embraced the freedom of Christ and then turned back to the ways of rules and regulations. And there's something about this Roman culture that you need to understand. This was especially true of like middle class and up. 
infant mortality was at a near all-time high. It was actually more likely that a child would die than survive into adulthood. And in the Roman culture, the only person that could be considered family, the, the, the lineage would pass down through all the rights and responsibility of the namesake, all the privileges of the inheritance would be a son. And so what would frequently happen is that when a child was born, it was not uncommon for that child to be given over into the guardianship of somebody else, almost like a, a nanny. And if the child survived into adulthood, obviously he's going to be the, the, the heir of the father. But there's a good chance that he wouldn't. And in fact, it wasn't even all that uncommon for a kid to go unnamed until after all those infant risks, childhood risks, had passed. But at some point, once all that had passed, the father would take the kid and go down into town square and he'd stand him up there and in front of everyone say, this is my son. And usually he'd tack on something like, with whom I'm well pleased. Sounds awfully familiar to those of us who remember Christ's baptism. This is my son. And from the moment the father said that, this is my kid, they would be in full standing with the family. They'd be welcomed into a level of intimate relationship with the father that they hadn't experienced. They'd, they'd sit down at the table with the dad and talk about the family business, talk about the family plans. They'd be involved in the father's business and able to speak into it and offer counsel. And in a society where forced military service would take you far and wide, and where you would be discharged from service into places that was more convenient for the empire than it was for your own personal life. It was not uncommon either for a, a young man's family to be so far away that he would never return home. He would be months or years march away from where he grew up and now he's in this place discharged to this region and expected to live there and all by himself or for a young man to have his entire family die of some disease and to be left alone. And because of that, it was also not uncommon for a, another family. Maybe they had some kids survive into adulthood. Maybe they wouldn't. But if, if you were a, a, a patriarch in the family and you saw somebody in town and you thought, they're pretty sharp, and you got to know them and you approved of them, and you actually, this is the type of person that I would like involved in my family. These are the type of people we want to be. You could take that young man, stand him in town in front of everyone, and say, this is my son. And from then on, that person who did not grow up in the care of the family nanny, who did not grow up with the family last name, they would have all the rights and privileges of a full-fledged son. Adoption was much more common in Roman society than it is in our world today. And so when Paul is talking about 
the sonship. You have graduated from, you know, guardians. You were in caretakers to the guardians. And now God says to you, this is my son. You need to understand that what Paul is invoking is this image of you being brought into a family, a full family that cannot be revoked. God takes you who believe in Jesus and stands you not in the town square but in front of the entire cosmos and says, that is my kid. This is my son, my daughter. And the reason why Paul uses gender-specific language there is not because somehow women are inferior in God's eyes. It's just the cultural metaphor that he's using. He needs to get across. This person is brought into an intimate relationship with the Father. You're adopted full. Don't forget, this is the man that just a few verses before said there is no difference, neither male nor female. Even though he's using what to our Western ears sound like very gender-biased language, what he's getting at is this message. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter whether you're a slave or free. It doesn't matter whether you're a Roman citizen or a, a, a Gaul. You know, the people that Paul's writing to in Galatians. Or a, a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. If you're a brand new Christian or, or you're part of a long family heritage. God still stands, looks at you, and when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, says, this is my child. And he goes on to use this term, by which our spirits call out Abba. It's almost an embarrassingly intimate term. Growing up around the farm, I would be usually at the shop. And even today, you'll find me talking to my dad and I'll say, hey, chief. Because it was almost embarrassing to call him dad in front of the, the other men. And I never call him daddy. But that's the level of intimacy that Abba invokes. I'm becoming one of these guys that keeps sharing what his daughter has taught him. This isn't recorded, so I'll say it. Or this isn't published, I should say. We celebrated her fourth birthday yesterday. For those of you who, like, we've been doing life together, how in the blazes did four years pass so fast? A couple of nights ago, she was awake, having a hard time getting her back to sleep. And there's this reoccurring theme in her life. She keeps wanting to be like everybody else and call her parents by their first name. And so I, I don't know if this is normal. Parents, you can tell me if this is normal. But I thought it was, I thought God was trying to teach me something here. We were rocking, and, and she, this is one of those things that just kind of got her upset. Nana and Papa get to call you Micah. Yes. Nanny and Poppy get to call you Micah. Yes. The teens at church, they get to call you Micah. Yes. And I was trying to rush this along because it's nearly midnight, and for Pete's sakes, you should be out hours ago. What are you doing awake? And I said, yeah, everyone gets to call me Micah. And with tears kind of brimming in her eyes, she was like, but why don't I get to call you Micah? As if it was some kind of restriction on her. 
and Ida invert her understanding, and, and you can see where this is going, I'm sure. Everybody gets to call me Micah, but only one person in this entire world gets to call me Daddy. This ability to look at the Father of all creation and call him Abba, it symbolizes not like, ooh, some kind of ritualistic thing. No, no. It, you have been brought into family. Good family. Your ability to look at God and because of your faith in Jesus Christ, say, Abba, Father. It symbolizes this remarkable work that God has done, this incredible love that God has done in your life and in his existence to bring you into the family of God. And it's almost like Paul is helping us understand how much higher and how much better the way of relationship is over the way of rules and regulations. Because in the next few verses, Paul shows how far the Galatians have fallen. Because he, he heads into this conversation, but what? You were doing so well, what, what happened? Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I wasted my efforts on you. Paul is trying to grab the Galatians by, by the short hairs and shake them and say, what, what is wrong with you? You were brought into a relationship, into family, and you're trying to go back and live with your nanny. The ways of rules and regulations, like, they were death. What do you want to do, sleep in your crib again? What is wrong with you? Don't fall back into the way of ticking off the boxes. Did I get such and such approval? Did I do such and such a thing? Did I talk to such and such a person? Did I get the right ritual done? Don't fall into that way. Don't, don't go back there. Don't, don't fall into the habit of celebrating, oh, well, this is the 27th cycle of the lunar. No! It's not about rituals. It's not about regulations. It's not about rules. It's about relationship. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you turn away from the relationship and embrace the rituals and the, the religion that cannot save, you are turning away from that family embrace, that intimacy, that Abba relationship, and entering again into an empty system. And Paul is trying to highlight here, do you not realize how far you have fallen by going this route? Don't you get it? And I, I honestly think this is a word for all of us. Because we all slip into habits. 
We all slip into making our relationship with God something we used to thrive on, but now we're living in the old way of doing it. I love how one of the teens put it a couple of weeks ago. It's pretty common for us to try and survive on yesterday's Jesus. But Jesus actually wants to be in relationship with you today. Not just in your memories. And from here in, this floor squeaks. You're going to have to stand on this side. From here in, it's almost like we were at that, that height of family. You know, we were at this beautiful point where our hearts can declare Abba. And we slide down into verse 20, and Paul is laying out his heartbreak. Because his heart, his heart is broken for these people, who at one point understood the freedom that comes with Christ, and are now living by empty rules and rituals and religion. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong, and incidentally, most of the commentators agree that that line, you did me no wrong, is Paul's way of saying, look, the offense you're committing, it's not against me. Yeah, it hurts, but it's not against me. You're actually offending God by running back into the arms of religion. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first, first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? You can see the division that has erupted in the community that Paul loves so much. He carries these people in his heart. And you can see that somebody has come in and formed a divisive wedge, is now turning brother and sister against each other. And, and you can kind of pick up that Paul is feeling like he's been ostracized. He's been driven out. People are trying to make him look like the bad guy. And he's the one that keeps calling them back into relationship with God. Look, when I was there, Paul says... I had a sickness that should have caused me to be an outcast. It was a burden to you, but you didn't look at it that way. Even in my illness, you heard the gospel. You treated me with this incredible joy and honor and love. We were family. What's happened that we have become enemies? How did this happen? What divisive spirit infected you? This would be a different way or a different context, a different letter, but similar language because Paul had to deal with these legalizers in multiple communities. There was a, a line when I was studying this passage that I came across in one of the commentaries. And I don't know why it was in this particular section, except that I think for the author, it was almost a concluding thought. Paul is trying to get across to these folk, look, you've got a choice. You can either make Christianity like every other religion in the world, all about the rites and the rituals, or 
you can press into intimacy. And if you default to just the habitual, this is what we do because this is what we do at church, then we're just another religion. But if you press into the relationship, then we become this kind of family brought together by God's love. Those people are zealous, verse 17. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. This is kind of a, a backwards way to go about a sermon. Normally what you try and do is you, you present the problem and then you build up to this great point and we can all leave feeling wonderfully lifted up. But in this scripture passage, what Paul is actually doing is saying, look, this is where we're supposed to be and these are the depths to which we can fall. I, I mentioned that I was going to try and work my way through and then provide a little bit of application. And since I've got just a little bit of time, let me provide... Just a little bit of application. If I was to pull two themes out of everything I've said this morning, I would want to hammer on this notion that Paul drives home, especially in that latter part of chapter 3, that we are all equal and part of the same family. Or to put it in more modern terms, I'd want to hammer on unity. Because this notion that some people should come in and, and drive a wedge or to treat other people as less than others. Oh, no, no. I, I'm a, a little bit better a Christian because I've been at so many Bible studies. Or I'm a little bit better a Christian because I've been around Emmanuel for so long. This, this is sickness. That's not the way that we are to be. We are to be brought together in unity and in equality. And I'll tell you the truth. Having grown up around the church, and this is my application, and this is only Micah speaking, but having grown up around the church, it is so easy for us to become divided. And it's so easy to look at Christian brothers and say, I know more than they do. It's so easy to look at Christian sisters and say, I hear God better than they do. And to form wedges based almost solely on our ego. And on past offenses that we refuse to forgive. The ability to carry around baggage luggage, hardship, hard feelings towards each other is not only a luxury we can never or no longer afford, but a sin that should never have been part of our life. The notion that we have something against a brother or sister, and I haven't taught on this for years. This is our communion table. You're not supposed to come to it when you've got a division with a brother or sister. You're supposed to go make things right. 
We're not celebrating communion this week. You've got a little bit of time. But we're not to be a divided people. We're not to be a people with lists against each other. We are all equal in the eyes of God. And the second thing I'd point out is that Paul actually in those later verses calls for mature passion. He says, zealousness is not wrong provided it's for the right thing. Over the years I found myself zealous for all kinds of things, especially pizza. But that's not a mature passion. Mature passion isn't either just what I think is right or just my bailiwick. Paul does call for a mature passion and in the context that he's doing it in, he calls for a passion for the family. A passion to pursue that intimacy with God and that intimacy with each other. We've been given each of us a spirit that calls out to the Father, Abba. Which for those of us non-emotive guys, it's a little bit embarrassing. But it's nonetheless true. Despite being a non-emotive guy, my heart still nearly breaks when my daughter looks at me and says, Daddy. And that's the level of fellowship and passion and unity that God calls us to and that we're to pursue with him and with the family. Because anything else is just dead religion. Anything else is just human systems that cannot save. God calls each of us the short lists and love for each other. As I've been studying the, the passage this week, that's what keeps ringing in my ears. And maybe it's just a message from Micah. Maybe it's just Micah that needs to keep short lists. Maybe Micah needs to go around asking for forgiveness. But I've got a hunch that I'm not all that abnormal. That it's really, really easy to keep lists. For those of us that have, today's a really good day to turn them back over to God and to ask Him to help forgive. To ask Him to bring healing into our own lives. And to ask Him to bring our family a little bit more together. I'm going to pray and then we're going to close in worship. But if today is a day that you need to ask God for help in forgiving people, I encourage you to pray with me. If you want somebody to pray with you, I know the deacons are around, I'll be around. Life is too short to go through it carrying baggage of offense. Let's pray. God, I'm not sure that I made two wits of sense. But I know that your spirit is up to something. So God, for those of us who have forgotten the importance of family, 
who haven't understood what it means to look at you and call you Abba for a long time. Lord, for those of us who have felt a very long way away from you, would you please re-spark that sense of joy and love that Paul talks about? Would you please cause us to see how much you love us and what it means to be part of your family? And for, Father, for those of us with lists, whatever their length, would you cause us to act like people who through your grace and only through your grace have been called your kid? Lord, thank you that you've called us your child. Thank you that you've owned us. Thank you that we are clothed in Christ and that we are forgiven because of what he's done. Thank you for the incredible grace, the incredible mercy, the incredible joy that you've given us. And Lord, would you please help us to forgive each other as you've forgiven. In your name, amen.